Hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes. Uh, since I'm not starting this new sermon series until uh, next month, I've just been doing some standalone messages uh, this month of uh, January. And uh, I just pray, just uh, felt very led, compelled by God to share uh, this particular message. I think it's appropriate here at the first of a new year talking about running the Christian race well. So you'll notice today's message is entitled, How to Finish uh, the Race Well. Uh, none of us know when our race will end, do we? Uh, there will be some of us here this morning that probably will not be with us the first of the new year, next year. And uh, so we want to make sure each and every day that we run well and that we uh, finish well. Our focal passage is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Now, I think most of you are familiar enough with the Scripture uh, to know that one of the uh, really primary metaphors uh, used in the Bible uh, to describe the Christian life is a race. Uh, a race that begins uh, with your conversion to Christ and then ends when you cross the finish line to be embraced by Christ. Winning the race involves crossing the finish line, having stayed faithful to Christ uh, as you encountered adversities, hazards, challenges, obstacles, pain uh, along the way uh, during the race. Now, the Hebrew believers to whom the book of Hebrews was written uh, had grown very, very weary. Uh, they were discouraged, uh, living in a society uh, that had become increasingly hostile uh, to their Christian uh, faith. Uh, they were suffering uh, persecution, and it was intensifying. Uh, we know from the uh, contents in the book uh, that there were some of these Hebrew believers who had had their possessions and their material means confiscated from them by the Roman government. Some of them had even been imprisoned, uh, tortured. At this point, none had suffered martyrdom, uh, but that was coming right around uh, the corner. Uh, so having to run their race in the face of great suffering had taken its toll on them. And they were, and it's very clear uh, when you read the book of Hebrews, they, they, were, they were tempted to quit. Uh, they were tempted to stop running uh, before they crossed the finish line. And so when you come to uh, chapter 12 of Hebrews, uh, you see this magnificent uh, exhortation by the writer for them to remain faithful in the race. In the first three verses of Hebrews 12, the primary exhortation is to run with endurance. The race that is set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus. And then when you move to verses 4 through 11, uh, they are told that the hardship that is encountered during the race is actually their loving Heavenly Father training them. Uh, training them to make them more spiritually fit, uh, to build endurance into their lives so that they will finish the race and receive Christ's 
reward. And then we come to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. And I would like you to open your Bibles there. And I'd like us to read uh, this portion of Scripture. And so you can follow along in your Bibles as I read from the New American Standard Version. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. So again, after this exhortation to run with endurance the race that is set before them, regardless of the hardships and the challenges, fixing their eyes on Jesus, the writer says this to them in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limp which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it uh, for it with tears. Look at the introduction in your sermon notes. Notice the word, therefore. That's how this passage begins uh, with, at verse 12. And, of course, that word, therefore, uh, connects this uh, section, Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17, to the preceding verses. Uh, the point being, Hebrews 12, that next sentence there in your introduction, Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17, is an exhortation to live up to the truth taught in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11, which, as we've already seen, is all about running the Christian race with endurance. Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17, consists of three commands to obey and two warnings to heed if you are to finish your Christian race well. So look with me first at finishing well what we must do. We want to focus on these three commands and look at the first one. We can sum it up this way. Accept the fact, this is the first thing you must do as a believer, if you're going to run the race well and finish well. Accept the fact that the race will be hard. Resolve not to give up. Keep running with eyes fixed on the prize, and of course that prize being Jesus, and realize, so important, you cannot make it across the finish line alone. We need one another. You will not, there's not a single believer that will ever make it across the finish line alone. We need one another. You know, like running in a grueling marathon, and I know some of you here have run in uh, marathons. I have not, and I don't plan to anytime soon. Uh, although I have an athletic background, I never could understand distance runners. They were just, they were like, they were just on a different planet, it just seemed like. But, uh, but like running in a grueling marathon, uh, running the Christian life uh, is hard. And, and, and here's what we need to understand. And, and often we, we forget this. All the Bible knowledge in the world, and even the strongest faith in God, 
does not make running the race easy. I'll say that again. You can have all the Bible knowledge in the world. You can have the greatest faith in God than anyone else on planet earth. But it's not going to make running your race easy. That knowledge, that faith in God, although all of that is very important. It, I mean, it, it is essential, but it, it will not take the pain out of adversity. It's not going to take the suffering out of persecution or the sorrow out of grief or the hurt out of wounds or the weariness and despair out of prolonged trials. There will be times when running the Christian race, you will experience what runners call hitting the wall. Now, although I wasn't a distance runner, uh, I was more of a sprinter. I did run the quarter mile, the 400 meter, and uh, that is a race where you can hit the wall when you come across that last curve to go down the uh, last straight. And let me tell you what I mean by, by hitting the wall. This is when you suddenly experience extreme fatigue, uh, loss of energy, just an overwhelming sense of discouragement. Everything about you just tightens up, and your body just shuts down. And at this point, you think, finish the race? you got to be kidding. I'm finished. <laughs> I'm over. Now, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 13 again. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, the writer is painting a vivid picture of an exhausted runner who has hit the wall. Notice his, his hands and arms, they're no longer pumping going down that, that course. No, his, his hands and arms are just limp just hanging down at his side. The knees are so feeble, the runner is no longer running. He's just doing his best to keep standing. He's staggering, and he's wobbling from side to side. And the writer here is expressing the toll that the Christian race takes on you because there are many very steep hills to climb as you run the Christian race. Now, do not miss the fact that this exhortation is addressed to the church family. And that's crucial for you to see that. It's addressed to the church family. We are in the race together. And not one of us, as I've already mentioned, is strong enough to finish the race without help. Uh, there will be times, as I already mentioned, when you're running the Christian race, it's going to become so hard that you're going to hit that wall. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. Some of you sitting here are right there right now. You've hit the wall. Uh, you may not be there today, but eventually you will be there. And if you've lived your Christian life for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, when that happens, you're going to need encouragement from your brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll need them to strengthen your hands, to strengthen your knees, and help you stay on the straight path. Now, the thing we want to thank God for is this. 
Praise God in a family, we don't all hit the wall at the same time. <laughs> uh, that, would be, that would be tragic if we all hit it at the same time. But uh, God is, in His mercy, is, uh, is good to us that that does not happen. Uh, there will be times when me, Andy Merritt, will falter in the race, and I will need you to pick me up. I'll need you to put your arms around me and say, come on, Andy, we can do this together. So let's go, Andy. One, two, left, right. Good boy, Andy. Good boy. And I'm back in the race. There will be times when you will need me. Bottom line, to finish the race, we desperately need one another. It's impossible to finish the race alone. Now, going back to Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 13, let's raise the question, well, how do we strengthen one another? How do we strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees? How do we get those who are faltering back up and and running? Look at Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4, and, and notice its similarity to our passage. Strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now, it is obvious, you cannot miss it, that the writer of Hebrews got his metaphor for verses 12 and 13 from this very passage in Isaiah. He's he's, he's drawing from it. And the passage in Isaiah was addressed to a faithful minority in Israel who had become very despondent and they were about to give up. They had endured many evil kings. They had endured many false prophets. Their culture was suffering decay and on a race towards God's judgment. There were no signs of spiritual revival. Powerful enemies were threatening the nation. So the prophet tells them, be strong, fear not. Why? Behold, your God will come with vengeance on your foes, and he will come and what? Save you. In other words, take your eyes off your circumstances and look to God. Don't give up now. A better day is coming. And why is a better day coming? Because victory is certain. And why is victory certain? Because God's coming. And when he comes, he will save you. And beloved, that's how we encourage those who are struggling in the race. We remind them a better day is coming. Victory is certain because Jesus is coming. And we must never forget that all of the pains of the race one day will be swallowed up in the euphoria of crossing the finish line to enter the eternal realms of heaven's glories. We read in Romans 8, verses 17 and 18, We suffer with Christ in order that we also may be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the sufferings involved in that Christian race, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 4, when he says, we, we are afflicted in every, every way. We're, we're perplexed at every turn. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. I'm often knocked down in the race, but I'm never knocked out. Always caring about in my body the death of Christ, that the life of Jesus might be manifested. 
And then he goes on, he says, but we don't lose heart. Why do we not lose heart? Because God is in the inner man renewing us day by day while we look not on those things which are seen, but those things which are unseen. While we look on those things which await us in eternity. So the first command is to accept that the race is going to be hard. And then resolve not to give up. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize, fixed on Jesus. And most important, realize you're never going to get across that finish line alone. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. I need you. You need me. We need one another. Look at the second command. Chase after peace. Chase after peace. Look at Hebrews 12, verses, uh, verse 14a, first part of verse 14. Pursue peace with all men. And when it says pursue peace with all men, that word pursue in the Greek text is a very, very strong word. It literally means to chase after something. And to chase after something with your goal being to catch it. And that you're not going to give up until you do catch it. And you're going to make every effort to do so. Uh, this word is used often in the New Testament and most of the time, it's in the context of pursuing harmony with others, harmony within the family of God. For example, just give you one example. In Romans 14, 9, we read, let us pursue, chase after, in order to catch the things that make for peace and the building up of one another in the body of Christ. When the writer of Hebrews says we are to pursue peace with all men in verse 14, this goes right back to what he told us in verses 12 and 13. The fact that the Christian race is too hard uh, to run alone. We need one another. Therefore, here's the point. If that's true, we can't afford to be at odds with one another. We can't afford to be divided. We need to be united in purpose, to honor and glorify God, to finish the race. Now, look in your notes at Romans 12, verses 17 and 18, which provides, I believe, some very practical instructions on how to pursue peace with one another. It says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. You might want to circle that word, never. Never pay back evil. For evil to you. In other words, you're never trying to get even with anybody. And then he says an interesting statement that is the key to this verse. And the key word is that first word. And I'll explain it in a moment. Respect. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So notice. Again, I'm never to seek revenge on anyone, but always pursue peace with everyone. God's Word does not allow for a single exception. A little bit further in the same passage, verse 21, he says, Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. Now, the key in doing this, as I already mentioned, is found in verse 17 when it says, Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Uh, that that translation, respect, may, may not be the best uh, word that could have been used. The, the, the Greek uh, word is pronoio, which literally means, literally means to think before you act. To think before you act. 
So the verse would be better translated, before you react to what was done to you, think what will look right in the sight of all men. In other words, what will be the right reaction to what just happened to me to put Jesus on display? That's what's being, that's what, that's the heart of this right here. This is very, very similar to the ab, ab, uh, 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 admonition that we find in Hebrews 12, verse 3. In Hebrews 12, 3, we read, for consider him, consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. The word consider literally means in the Greek text, examine something carefully in order to come to a conclusion. So examine this very, very carefully in order to reach a conclusion. So we, we are to examine carefully how Jesus responded to hostility, and then we are to determine how we will respond to those who wrong us. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, this is not in your notes, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in His footsteps. We are given some good advice in Proverbs 29, 11. A stupid man gives free reign to his anger. A wise man waits and lets it cool. So notice, cool it is a biblical term. You got it right there. God is saying, when you get angry, cool it. Krista has a shirt that she loves. It says, what does it say? Chill. Chill out. That's right. That's what they're saying. Just chill out. See, you can't put your foot in your mouth if you keep your mouth shut. Uh, Count to ten. Go as high as you have to. But here's the thing. Just don't count. As you're counting, as you're keeping your mouth shut, as you're cooling it, chilling out, engage your mind. Consider what would Jesus do in this situation? That's the question you need to ask. In light of what was just done to me, as terrible as it might have been, as wrong as it may have been, as hurtful as it may have been, how would Jesus respond in this situation? And then you ask God, God, give me the strength. Give me the strength. Give me the grace to respond in a manner that would put Jesus on display right now, that all men would see him in and through my life. And, you know, I'm always amazed in the Scripture uh, how practical Jesus was in his teaching and how very concrete he was. When he he talked about loving others, I mean... Number one, he always used verbs, action words. And and there's no wiggle room with Jesus. You know, just a couple examples. Jesus said, okay, you got somebody that hates you. What does Jesus say? You do, you do 
good to them. You got somebody that hates you. You, as a believer, if you're going to follow Jesus, you do good to them. Or he says, if you have someone who curses you, who uses their mouth to hurt you, to damage your reputation, how are you to respond to that? With your mouth, you're to bless them. Or he says, if you have somebody who tries to use you in a wrong way, uh, abuse you, he says, get on your knees and pray for them. He says, you have an enemy, and he would define an enemy who's someone who doesn't, it goes beyond hate. This is an individual who's out to destroy you. He says, feed your enemy. In other words, he says, you find a need that your enemy has, and you meet that need for your enemy. Uh, you have someone who's wronged you, deeply hurt you, what are you to do? Forgive. Forgive. That is how you chase peace with all men. And you can only do that by the grace of God working in and through you. But again, I think you see we have to cooperate with the process as we see in Scripture. Then look at the third command. We're also to be in hot pursuit of holiness. We're to be in hot pursuit of holiness. Again, going back to Hebrews 12, verse 14, it says, Pursue sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification, of course, refers to holiness, which is being conformed to the character of God, being conformed to the image, the likeness of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, again, these are not in your notes, but we read, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And then look at Proverbs 4, verses 25 and through 27, which is in your notes. Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. That sounds like Hebrews 12. Fix your eyes on what? Jesus Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. I like the way the paraphrase, the message puts it. Leave evil in the dust. Leave evil in the dust. So what does it mean to be in hot pursuit of holiness? In the context of Hebrews 12, in the context of this passage, it means to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in order to follow in his footsteps. In other words, as you're running the race, there's a pace setter. That pace setter is Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Follow in his footsteps. It means to consider how Jesus dealt with hostility. How did Jesus respond to suffering? And then follow his example. And God says, as you submit to me and don't resist me on this point and look to me for grace, I will give you the grace to do that. It means submitting to adversity as God's tool to share His holiness. That nothing touches your life that God can't use for your ultimate spiritual good and His greater glory. Look at Hebrews 12 there in your sermon notes, verses 10 and 11. He disciplines us, what? For our good, that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment is sorrowful, yet 
To those who are trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. See, if you are God's child, He loves you. We just sang about it earlier with an unfailing love that will never run out on you. He's going to stick with you through thick and thin. And because He loves you, He has put you under His training for your good, that you might share His holiness and walk in peace and righteousness. How does God do this? He uses both external circumstances and the internal presence of the Holy Spirit to break us of our self-centeredness and our sinful tendencies in order to produce in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. See, God is steady at work in you to produce peace and holiness. And this gives me an opportunity once again to emphasize the challenge I gave you a couple of weeks ago. That as we enter this new year, remember I challenged you to pray two prayers every day that won't take more than five minutes each day. The two prayers are in Ephesians 1. And see, both of these prayers focus on God who is at work in you. Again, God, grant me that spirit of wisdom, revelation knowledge of Jesus. What's he asking? Give me the grace to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, open the eyes of my heart to see what the hope of my calling is, what you've called me to do, what you've called me to be. Open my eyes to the riches of your glory that you've deposited in me, that I lack nothing that I need to finish this race. You've already given me all. It's mine to appropriate. And Lord, open my eyes to the exceeding greatness of the power that dwells in me, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead that will enable me to overcome the weariness and the pain and the obstacles and the hazards along the way and to cross the finish line of victor for Jesus. Grant me according to the riches of Ephesians 3. Grant me according to the riches of your glory to be strengthened. Where with power? Where through your spirit in the inner man. That's where I need the help. To overcome the discouragement and the weariness. And then, oh God, help me to see that I'm rooted and grounded in your love. That nothing can sever me from that love. Nothing can uproot me from that love. And oh God, give me the, the, the wonderful joy and privilege to know that love, experience, enjoy the length, death, breadth, and height of that love, for that love to sustain me, to carry me. And Lord, I acknowledge there will be times in the race I'm going to need you to carry me because I'll be too weak to continue on. And then he says, fill me with your fullness. Fill me on the inside with your fullness. Don't let me settle for a superficial walk with you. Don't let me settle for wearing a mask before others and just playing a spiritual game. No, Lord, you do a real authentic work on the inside. Change me from the inside out that you'd so fill me with Jesus that wherever I am, Jesus would be demonstrated. We'd be put. And then God praise you that you are that power at work in me. You are that power at work in me to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything that I could ever ask or think or pray for. And you're going to do that to the praise and glory of Jesus. So again, once again, another opportunity. Pray those two prayers. If you miss a day or two, don't get discouraged. Don't get filled with guilt and condemnation. Just get back to them. Just get back to them. Therefore, when God commands you in verse 14 to pursue peace and holiness, he's simply saying... Pursue what I'm already, already working to accomplish in your life. That's what he's saying. In other words, it's, it's not complicated. 
Jesus, if you're a believer, Jesus says, I'm at work in your life. So what he's saying is, don't resist me. Don't run from me. No, run with me. Run to me. Cooperate with me. Give me the opportunity to accomplish the work that I've begun in you. This is the same principle we see in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Why? Because God is working in you. Giving you the desire. Giving you the power to do what pleases Him. Now before leaving Hebrews 12, 14, notice it says, Pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now I believe there are a couple of applications of this, but I believe it's definitely saying that... Uh, uh, the lost will never see the Lord unless he sees them through his people. And he's never going to see Christ through us unless we know sanctification, unless we know holiness, unless Christ's character is being formed in us to be displayed through us. So to, so to sum up these three commands on how to finish the race well, first, we must realize the race is going to be brutally hard. We can't run it alone. We can't cross the finish line. We're going to need one another. We desperately need one another. And that's why there's the family of God. There's no lone rangers here. We're a family and we're in this thing together. Second, we're to chase after peace because we do need one another. We can't afford division. And third, we are to be in the hot pursuit of holiness why? So others will see in us, see Jesus in us, and as they see Jesus in us, hopefully they will embrace our Christ and choose to begin to run the race with us. Amen? Now, finishing well, what we must guard against. Uh, look at the next statement in your notes. There are two things he says we have to guard against, but that next statement, as you run the race, maintain a steady pace with God's grace. Because if you fall behind, you will be caught and overtaken by. And the first danger that we could possibly be overtaken by is bitterness. Bitterness. And again, all of this is in the context of running the Christian life. And running well and being able to finish well. Look at Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it many be defiled. Look at the next statement in your notes. God's grace will never fail. But we can fail to depend on God's grace. A bitter person is a person who in hardship turns away from God's grace in despair, turning him into a hostile, antagonistic person dominated by resentment. I think of Naomi. Remember, she got so mad at God because of life circumstances, because the race had become so hard, she just screamed at her uh, neighbors, don't call me Naomi anymore. That was her name, which means pleasant one. He said, don't call me Naomi anymore. You call me Mara which means bitter. And you call me bitter because Almighty God has dealt bitterly with me. She was in the gall of bitterness. She had turned from God in despair and discouragement and disappointment. And many of us have been there. We know exactly what she experienced. And praise God, although she got there, God didn't let her go. And he won her back, didn't he? 
before you get to the end of that book. See, bitterness, let me, let me explain it this way. Bitterness is the deep hurt that you feel when somebody wrongs you. Accompanied by feelings of animosity toward the person who inflicted the wound. That's what bitterness is. It's just that deep hurt you feel, which is inevitable when you're wrong, but accompanied with feelings of animosity towards the person who inflicted the wound. Guilt is what we feel when we sin. Bitterness is what we feel when someone sins against us. And since bitterness is based on somebody else's sin, somebody else's wrong, we find it far too easy to justify our bitterness, our resentment, our animosity. Um, our focus becomes getting even with the offender instead of getting right with God. As we talked about earlier, putting Christ on display. Uh, what cancer is to the body, don't miss this. What cancer is to the body, bitterness is to the human soul. And left unchecked, it will not only destroy you, but it will destroy everyone close to you. As Hebrews 12, 15 says, bitterness causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. Now, right now, this is what I want you to do, if this person exists. I want you to identify a person who hurt you. Go into the recesses of your memory. Who hurt you? Who hurt you? Maybe somebody very recently. It could be something way in your past. I want you to identify a person who hurt you, and, and you became bitter with them. Now, word of advice. If you're struggling to determine whether or not you're bitter or not. Let me give you a good rule of thumb. Bitterness remembers details. Bitterness remembers every detail of the wrong suffered in order to build a case against the person who wronged you. A bitter person rehearses over and over and over in their mind, the wrong suffered them, which just flames those feelings of bitterness. Now, look in your note at those next four bullet points on how to outrun bitterness. Uh, because of my time constraints, we, we cannot linger long. I will not be able to go through all the scripture passages, but they're there for you to go through. And this can be of immense help to anyone struggling with bitterness. So here's how you outrun bitterness. Here's the first thing you need to do. Remove any personal guilt through repentance and restitution. Now, again, in saying that, I'm not trying to say you weren't wronged. I'm not trying in any way to minimize what the person did to you or to justify that. All I'm trying to say is get before God and say, okay, God, in this situation, is there anything I did to contribute to this? Is there anything I can learn from this to be better going forward? Now, it's possible that you were just, you did absolutely nothing. You just were totally blindsided. But I've lived long enough. I'm 68 years old, and I've been wronged. I've been hurt. 
and what was done to me was not justifiable. But when I go to God and I, and, and I begin to see, well, you know, my attitude or maybe it wasn't what I said, but how I said it or maybe it was just a, a, a lack of sensitivity over a period of time that sort of contributed. You know, just, just, you just don't want to miss any lesson that God has for you. That's, you understand what I'm trying to say? Not trying to justify the person who hurt you. I'm not trying to minimize what they did to you. I'm just saying, get before God and say, God, search me and try me. See if there's any evil or hurtful way in me and lead me in the way. Don't let me miss any lesson that you have from me on how I can better relate to people, how I can better love people going, before, going forward. And then look at the next bullet point. You have to realize bitterness and this is a tough pill to swallow, but you got to swallow it. Bitterness is never caused by what another person did to me, but my response to what they did to me, for which I'm responsible to God. That First Peter passage, the, the emphasis there is no one can spiritually harm you. I mean, they can hurt you physically, they can hurt you emotionally, but they can't spiritually harm you unless... You become harmed by your own bitter response where you turn from God's grace and refuse to submit to God. See, you, you have to see this as a situation. If it happened, it doesn't, let's be very careful. We, we, we don't want to have a warped sense of God's sovereignty, and many people do. God does not cause everything that happens on planet Earth. Scripture does not teach that. I mean, the devil exists. There are other wills beside God's will. That's why we pray, not my will, but thine be done. Why Jesus said, pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in, in heaven. So there, there's, there's battles raging. And, and, and God's so pure, he's so good, he can't even tempt someone to do evil. So there are, there are many evil acts that are committed on planet earth. Much injustice, much suffering, pain, inflict. God doesn't cause that. But here's what we have to deal with as believers. He may not have caused it, but he's big enough he could have stopped it. He could have prevented it from happening. And then I have to accept the fact, if he did not prevent it, if he allowed it, the only reason he did so was for my spiritual good to plunge me deeper into the grace and the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That he might receive glory as Christ is put on display through my life. And that's why we did read in Romans 12, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. That's got to be our response. It's how we respond. The hurt, being hurt's not wrong. You're going to be wounded. And it's going to be painful. But how do I respond to the hurt? How do I respond to the pain? And what God is saying, don't get infected with, don't let the wound get infected with bitterness, with animosity. Turn to Jesus, submit to him. How would Christ respond? How would he desire me to respond? And then submit to him. And as you submit, as you surrender, he'll give you that grace to learn the lessons that he has for you and to learn deeper depths of his love. Look at the third bullet point. Regard my offender, the one who offended me, regard that offender as God's tool 
to accomplish God's purpose in my life. The passages there are out of the book of Genesis from the life of Joseph. And that Genesis 50, it says it all. Remember, it was Joseph said to his brothers, what you did to me, you meant it for evil. You hated me. You were trying to take me. Matter of fact, if it hadn't been for Reuben's intervention, the older brother, they would have killed him, murdered him. Instead, they sold him into slavery, thinking that gets him out of the way. So he said, what you did to me, you meant it for evil. But he didn't stop the sentence there. He said, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result, the preserving of many lives, even the preserving of the lives of the ones who tried to take him out. God uses some interesting tools in our lives. And again, there's at some point in my life, in your life, we have to recognize God is sovereign. God's the one that determines what I need, the lessons I need to learn, and to draw me to Him in that. And then the fourth bullet point, recognize bitterness is assuming a right I never have, while forgiveness is a responsibility I always have. Uh, Colossians 3 says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also do to others. And then, not only bitterness, look at the second danger we need to avoid, and that's unhealthy appetites, like Esau. Verse 16 says, let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. And you know the story of Esau, how for just a stinking meal... He literally sold, gave up his birthright, his inheritance. So what we need to do is develop a spiritual runner's diet. And those next three bullet points. And again, I'll just trust you to look at those verses. Keep your eyes focused on God's prize. And the prize is what? Jesus. Paul said, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain him. Keep your heart filled with God's precepts. Jeremiah said, thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they became the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. And then keep your will following God's plan. John 4, that's where Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father. And to accomplish his work. God has a work for you to do. A plan for you to finish. And let that be your food that you feast on. And then look at that last statement in your notes as we close. Do not make the mistake of trading in the rigors of the race for a life of ease and pleasure. Because to do so puts you in danger of forfeiting the glorious rewards God has waiting for you at the finish line. As we close, let me just uh, read one last passage, and I trust this. It's a one that you're all familiar with. I trust it to be an encouragement to you. Uh, you know, reality is, as we've seen in this message, God doesn't run the race for me. He doesn't. God does not run the race for me, but He does run the race with me to empower me, to give me grace and strength, and this is what we find in this verse. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. 
He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Amen? Bow your head. Just want to give you a, just a few moments to reflect on what you've heard today and, and how do you need to respond uh, to God? Uh, which one of those three commands stands out to you? Or maybe you were definitely talked to by God related to one of those two dangers or possibly both of them. Just want to give you an opportunity before God's presence right now to acknowledge, yes, God, the race is hard and So right now I need to get my eyes fixed on you, acknowledge I can't win it alone, I'm going to need the help of my brothers and sisters, maybe renew your commitment to pursue peace in the body of Christ, that we can't afford division, to pursue holiness, sanctification, and then ask God to give you the grace to not be infected with bitterness and not to develop appetites that would damage you in the race, but that you would feed on that which will be profitable to you. So just give you some time to respond to whatever God has spoken into your heart today through His truth. Father, you hear the cries and the prayers of us, your people. And thank you, you are a loving Heavenly Father who responds to our sincere cries and prayers. And Father, I would have to believe, regardless of the particular point you touched on in each individual heart, uh, we're all acknowledging right now our total, utter, absolute dependence upon you. And the need to keep our eyes fixed on you and to be strengthened by you in the inner man. That we would run the race well. Being considerate of one another. To be able to cross the finish line hearing those words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now the joy of your Lord. So Lord, give us the grace to do so as individuals. Give us the grace to do so as a church family. Realizing we are in the race together. And thank you that we're not only in the race together, but you're with us. You're the pace setter. You've gone before. You've experienced everything we've talked about. Temptation, hostility, persecution. You've been mocked, scorned, spit on, cursed at. So give us grace to not only consider you, but to follow in your footsteps 
as we know you as that power at work in us. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen.